Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. Good morning, everyone. Hey, I'm back. Yeah. Oh, that was very nice. Uh, I I know Presley said a couple weeks ago, in fact, we watched Church Online while we were gone. Um, Presley said a few weeks ago that I was among my people, and that is very true. Uh, I look like I fit in here, but I really fit in in Ireland. So uh, I found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh, I did want to say that Presley this week is among his people. He is in the land of Arkansas. And uh, he's having a good time. He's on his way back, but we're looking forward to having him back soon. Um, Real quick, before we get too far along, I did want you to know, don't forget that next Sunday is what we're calling Friend Sunday. And we did mention that it doesn't have to be a friend. In fact, uh, according to the Sermon on the Mount, you could probably invite an enemy. That wouldn't be a bad thing to do either. You could invite, maybe we should have Enemy Sunday. I don't know. Uh, Enemy Sunday at church. But anyway, next Sunday is Friend Sunday, uh, September 10th. Um, 9 a.m., there's actually going to be breakfast, hot breakfast, pancake, sausage, things like that served. It's going to be delicious, and we want you to come and participate in that. So that's Friend Sunday next week. And then uh, we're going to start a new series next week as well, and the series is called Greatest Hits. I think I have a picture of it up here. Uh, by the way, youth group, those, uh, those things in the background are called cassette tapes. And uh, they used to put music on them. And uh, many of the cars actually had a slot where you could slide that in and you could listen to music. It was this amazing technology at the time. The sermon series is going to be about uh, what Jesus taught. And if you were to be able to, to sit down in one of those giant crowds that had gathered around to hear the Son of God speak, you, we're going to be exploring the things that you would have heard. And we have some records of it where they've collected the various teachings of Jesus into one place. And they were, they were his greatest hits, so to speak. And everything he said was life and truth and goodness. Uh, but we're going to be exploring for six weeks many of the teachings that just really fundamentally transformed the way people thought about what life was supposed to be. And so that's going to start next week. And so we think you have a friend that probably needs to hear that. You need to hear it, but your friend needs to hear it as well. So that's going to start next week. But this week we're finishing up our sermon series called Red Flags. Red Flags. Uh, Or as Minnesotans say it, Red Flags. We're finishing this up. You didn't get that because you speak Minnesotan. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) My paternal grandmother uh, was a little cranky. Now, this is my dad's mom. She grew up in Ireland, migrated to Scotland, and then eventually to Brooklyn, and I only knew her late in life. And even then, as a little kid, I knew that she was a little cranky. She was a legendary grudge holder. And again, I was young enough that this wasn't personal experience to me. She didn't hold grudges against her little two-year-old. She grew up uh, Catholic, was raised Catholic, raised my dad Catholic. And when I was born, of course, I was born everything, buddy, that's not Catholic is called Protestant. So she called me her wee Protestant. I was her wee Protestant. And I maybe softened her heart towards those Protestants. Because if you grew up in certain parts of the world, the divide between Catholicism and Protestantism is pretty, pretty severe. But she was, um, she was a legendary grudge holder. Her name was Rose, and she was more maybe thorn than flower. The best example of that that I have heard in family lore is that at her son, my uncle's wedding, by the way, his name was also Patrick Doherty, at his wedding, 
She was seated in the, during the reception just a little too close to the kitchen doors where the servers were coming in and out. And she felt like that signaled that her new daughter-in-law and son uh, were disrespecting her. Now, you might think that might ruffle your feathers a little bit or somebody might get upset or they might misinterpret some circumstances. But I'm telling you, Grandma Rosie took it to another level. And when I say that she did not speak to her son and her daughter-in-law for the next 25 years, I'm not exaggerating. She had not stepped foot in their house. Now, in 25 years, things happen. Stuff happens. They had children, and she did not meet her grandchildren. Imagine that. It's mind-blowing. Now, this is, of course, Doherty family lore, but what I have heard, they lived, all lived in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, and it was a small enough neighborhood that you would occasionally run into people you knew in the neighborhood. And this is true that when, uh, when a family member was out with the two grandchildren, they were walking down the street, and Grandma Rosie was coming towards them. She, these, the kids are eight or nine at the time. She crossed the road to go to the other side of the street rather than, reconcile with her family. Now, I know all of you are like, well, that's crazy. Why are you calling out your grandma uh, like that on a Sunday morning? I'm not doing that to call her out. I'm doing that because we are all on the same page that that is taking things a little too far. We can all agree on that. We're all together on that. But here's the truth. Here's the sad truth to varying degrees. And we use different calculus to get there. But we all have a little Grandma Rosie in us. We all have a little person in us that sometimes get wound up and offended and hurt feelings. We all have that in us. And, and really what I'm telling you this story for is to say, don't offend the Doherty family. We will, we will hold it against you for years. That's not, that's not true at all. We all have a little Grandma Rosie in us. So here's the headline. Here's the thing that we're going to uh, start with and then make our way back to at the end of what we're talking about this morning is this. It is worth it. It is worth it to work through it. It is worth it to work through it. It's worth it to work through it. Red flags are early warning signals that there may be trouble ahead. That, and we often apply them to other people. They do something and we think, hmm, that's a signal that this relationship may not be going in the direction that I want it to, that this person may not some, be somebody to spend a lot of time with or to, to get into business with. If you're dating, that may be a signal that this may be a person that I shouldn't spend the rest of my life with. Uh, I was reading this week on some, some uh, red flags in, in, in relationships, dating relationships specifically, and uh, these came up and I thought these were worth sharing. If they use two, two, and two interchangeably, red flag. Uh, if they don't hold the door for people behind them, I like that one. That's a Minnesotan one. Hold the door for the person behind you. Don't let it slam on them. Come on. Some of you are like, but it's awkward, and they're too far back, and then it gets weird, and they have to jog to catch up. Just hold the door. Just do it. Uh, how about this, guys? When you're grouchy for the rest of the day because your team lost? Ooh, silence. Or a pineapple on the pizza. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, red flag. Now, this isn't what we're talking about here is not their red flags, but it's ours. It's our red flag. You learn a lot. You learn how to spot signs in yourself, in your own heart, in your own life, 
when there's impending trouble. And the red flag that we're going to specifically uh, talk about, well, the ones we have talked about, let me recap these really quick. Week one, we talked about if they would just blank, I could like them. If they would just, essentially, we're saying if they would just be different, I could like them. Uh, week two, uh, Presley talked about if it wasn't so awkward and uncomfortable. I don't, I don't deal with the awkward, uncomfortable stuff very much, so I, I can't really push through that. Uh, week three, if I weren't so busy. Steve talked about this, and it was pretty convicting to hear about the fact that we have built our lives in such a way that we don't really have space for relationships, much less deep relationships. And then today we're going to talk about because they blank, fill in the blank, I will never have anything to do with them. Because they sat me too close to the kitchen doors at the wedding reception, the Grandma Rosie approach to conflict. There's a very, very short list of things that should go in that blank. Not no things, but a short list of things. Now, people's minds, when you say something like this, people's minds in the room tend to go to the most extreme scenario. Like, what if somebody I knew is a serial killer and they've murdered several people? Do I just have to put that in the past and reconcile with them? I mean, we go to the most extreme situation. Am I supposed to work through that? Am I supposed to just, is it worth it to work through it because they've murdered everybody I know? Well, first of all, that would be a really interesting podcast and I would listen to that. But secondly, we're, most of us aren't in those kinds of situations. And if you are, you should probably talk to your therapist about what you should do, how you proceed in a situation like that. But we're not talking about this. And I'm all for boundaries. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus is all for boundaries. Jesus had boundaries. People made, made requests of him and he said no. Jesus had boundaries. I'm talking about our normal everyday relationships. And in some situations, reconciliation may not be possible. I understand that, by the way, some of the people that you have had conflict, conflict with may not be around anymore. There may be literally no way for you to reconcile with them because they have passed and you still have those feelings and you still have those questions and those doubts. Reconciliation may not be possible. And we'll talk about that more in a bit. But I want you to think about maybe a, a coworker, an unreliable coworker, that just everything they do gets on, on, on your nerves, or they take credit for the, the things that you do, and you have to pick up their slack, or, or a relative that has is, that is ruined more than one family holiday, or a former friend who all of a sudden you don't know why, but you're blocked on social media, and you don't know what's going on, and you want to take offense, and you want to be mad, and you want to start talking bad about them. Or for some of you, in the room, it's a marriage that's beginning to disintegrate and fray at the edges. and You're allowing that offense to get to you and, and, and to, to, to your pride and to your ego, and it's starting to get cold and hard. Uh, for other people, it just could be a daughter-in-law who seated you too close to the, the kitchen doors where the staff was coming in and out. So I, I just want you to know, heads up, what we're going to be talking about today is tough. It is tough because it's, it brings up some pretty raw feelings when you start thinking about your own situations, your own scenarios. And I know we in our own minds have figured out why it's okay to leave those people at, at arm's length. And maybe it is. I told you reconciliation isn't always possible. But man, that list of things that we don't reconcile over should be really short. It's worth it to work through it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a surprising story in the New Testament where this happened between two godly people that were trying to do the right thing, where there was this incredible clash that they had to figure out how do, what do we do? What do we do? How do we navigate this? So I'm going to give you the condensed version of the story. The condensed version, some of this will be familiar, some of it won't. But Paul, uh, or Saul, also known as Paul, can I give you just a little fun trivia? 
Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul's is his, Ro- is his Roman name. He didn't change his name when he became a Christian. It's just depending on who he was interacting with, he went by one name or the other. Some, I've even heard sermons where the preacher said, he changed his name, his identity. No, no, no. It's just it's the same name, different languages. Saul, also known as Paul, he was a member of the Pharisees. So you've heard about the Pharisees. They had some, some pretty serious run-ins with Jesus. They're ultra, ultra conservative religious, uh, religious group. Now, this Jesus thing to this point had primarily stayed in Jerusalem and in the surrounding vicinity, but it was starting to spread and the Pharisees wanted to stamp it out. They killed Jesus in order to stamp it out, but the message is starting to spread. The greatest hits of Jesus is starting to spread to the surrounding communities. So Saul goes to the religious authorities and he says, can I have permission to travel all the way up to Damascus, 52 hour walk, by the way, cross some international borders. May I have permission to travel all the way up to Damascus and, and arrest anybody that's trying to spread this way? Can I do that? And they said, sure, you go do that. Now, you know the story. On the way to Damascus, he had this encounter with Jesus that he could not rationalize away. He could not explain it away. He even went blind. And it was kind of symbolic to say, Saul, you think you see, but you do not. Why are you persecuting me? He had this experience he couldn't rationalize away. And Presley talked about how this guy named Ananias came alongside him, risked his life for, uh, to just interact with Saul. But he gets, so what he does, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 26, he, he, he comes back to Jerusalem where he started. But he's a changed man at this point. He comes back to Jerusalem. He tried to join the disciples. He tried to join Peter and James and John. He tried to get in with that group, but they were afraid. They didn't believe it. He was really a disciple. And you can understand why. I mean, this is a ploy. This is how anti-Christian Saul was, that they were convinced that all he was doing was trying to infiltrate the ranks and bring them down from the inside. You can, you can imagine. That's the reputation that he had. They didn't believe he was really a disciple, double agent. Um, they're all nervous he's working undercover. He's deep undercover. And, and honestly, that's kind of reasonable, right? It's reasonable to think that. This guy went from one extreme to the other so quick, like it's head spinning. No wonder people thought this cannot be right. That can't be real. But verse, uh, the, the next part of verse 26, but Barnabas, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Now, Barnabas is a character we're going to learn a little bit about in just a second, but he literally ris- risks his neck to bring Saul into the community. I mean, there's a lot on the line because what if Saul does turn out to be a wolf in sheep's clothing? I mean, this is a big deal. Barnabas was literally the human bridge that helped Saul be be joined to the the, the burgeoning church in the first century. I mean, that's that's a big deal. Now, we learn that Barnabas, we learn a little bit about his character. Barnabas has a heart for people. We learn that throughout the stories in the book of Acts. He loves people. He gets it. He, he, in fact, did you know Barnabas isn't even his name? Bonus points trivia. Does anybody know what his real name was? Joseph or Joseph. Joseph. Yeah, my dad got that, just by the way. It's in the genes. Just wanted you to know. Yeah. Uh, and Barnabas means, no, people know this, right? I know certain people in the room do. Does anybody know what the... 
Yes, son of encouragement. That's right, Rebecca. That's a gold star too. Barnabas means son of encouragement. They were like, this guy loves people, loves drawing people in. They, changed, they didn't even call him Joseph or Joseph. They called him son of encouragement. That was, his new, that was his name. That was how he is known because of his personality, because of the type of person he was. So Paul or Saul and Barnabas become this dynamic duo. And they go all over kind of the known world, the Mediterranean basin at the time, and they start planting Jesus communities. The Holy Spirit, listen, the Holy Spirit, this is important. Hold on. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Now hold on to this one little detail, this one little tiny fly in the ointment that we're going to unpack in just a minute. Acts 13, 5, John was with them as their helper. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Doesn't seem like much, but the author of the story of Acts, recounting history, Luke, is just including this little detail that's going to resurface later. It's like in a movie where they plant some important crucial detail at the beginning of the movie that unfolds later and is crucial to the plot. This is important to the plot. Now, John is John Mark. That's who this guy is. He's John Mark. There were a bunch of Johns in the Bible. This one's John Mark. Now, we, we don't know why he left Paul. We don't know why he left Barnabas. We don't know what was going on. Maybe he got homesick. He was just a young guy. Maybe he was like, man, I've not been around uh, away from my mom for very long, and I just, this, is not, this is not doing me good. In fact, where it sails from Perga to Pamphylia, that's going away from Jerusalem. And maybe he was like, I don't want to go away from Jerusalem. I need to go back home. I got some, maybe there's a girl waiting for him. I mean, we have no idea. Maybe it was the trip was tough. We read about in the book of the Acts, book of Acts, things that happened to Paul. I mean, he got rocks thrown at him and his companions in an attempt to kill him. He was arrested. There were riots. Maybe John Mark was like, this is not what I signed up for. We don't have any clue. It could have been any of those things or all of those things. Now, Paul and Barnabas go on from here. They take the gospel all over the known world. They plant these Jesus communities all over the Mediterranean basin. These are all, uh, they start with uh, Jewish expatriates who have migrated to other parts of the world, but then Gentiles start to be included. And that's kind of a big deal too. If you thought the Catholic-Protestant divide and Belfast was a big deal, which by the way, it's still a big deal. I'll tell you about that sometime. But if you thought that was a big deal, this was a huge deal, trying to reconcile Gentile people and Jewish people, and they're all trying to follow Jesus. And, and Paul and Barnabas are, are establishing these Jesus communities where these two groups are coming together. It's a big deal. It's just all, this is all unfolding. It, it, what they do, they actually do all this, all this church planting, and then they go back to Jerusalem, and they convince all the church leaders in Jerusalem that it's okay for Gentiles to be part of this Jesus community, and they don't have to keep the Hebrew law. That's what Acts chapter 15 is all about, and they have this incredible victory. It changes the face of Christianity. No joke, the reason that you're in this room today worshiping Jesus is because these guys went on this tour and came back to Jerusalem to convince everybody it was okay for non-Hebrew people to join Jesus' communities without keeping the old law. That's why you're here. It traces back to what these guys did. It's a big deal. It changes the face of Christianity. But then, now this is the conflict. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Some time later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back. Let's visit all those believers in the towns where we preach the word of the Lord. Let's see how they're doing. 
They don't have social media to check people's posts. They can't, they can't uh, scrutinize people's Instagram pictures to see what's really going on in the background. Verse 37, Barnabas wants to take John, who is also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia, and he had not continued on with them in the work. Verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. These guys who had changed the face of Christianity could not work this particular detail out. They parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sold for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers for the grace of the Lord. Sharp disagreement. I think, personally, this is Patrick's opinion, that they toned down the disagreement in translation. The word, it's just one word in Greek for sharp disagreement. Just one word. And other places, it's translated fury. Fury. They had such a sharp disagreement. Now, I think it's kind of interesting because when we think about sharp <laughs> disagreement, maybe we'd prefer to describe our disagreements that way. But have you ever, can you conceive of a sharp disagreement that you've had? Maybe with a spouse or maybe with a child, or maybe with a family member, or a relative, or a co-worker, a sharp disagreement. A sharp disagreement is where the gloves come off, and your brain goes past the point of rationality, and you start to say things that you can't take back. That's a sharp disagreement. It's called a sharp disagreement because it's painful, because you're taking stabs at one another. This is a big deal and I think the translators of Scripture, when they made it into English, they were like, man, we don't really like the fact that Paul and Barnabas, these two pillars of the faith, are having this kind of conflict. We don't like that, so we're going to tone it down and call it sharp disagreement. But I think most of us can imagine what kind of disagreement that it was. It was a big deal. They can't resolve it. They go their separate ways. Now think about this for a second. Think about this. I want you to think about this particular conflict because it's so much easier to have opinions about other people's conflict than our own. It's easier to be objective about what they're going through versus what we're going through. So let's think about their conflict for a second. Paul is laser-focused on the mission. The, we planted these churches. We need to go back and check on them. In terms of the mission, Mark, John Mark, has proven himself unreliable. He's not somebody that we can count on when the going gets tough. Why would we want to get out in the middle of nowhere and be needing help, be needing support, and have this kid say, I can't do it, and bail on us again? There's too much at stake, Paul would say. And in fact, he might even quote Jesus, and he might say, Jesus said, if a person is worthy of the kingdom, they won't look back when they put their hand to the plow. He might bring Jesus into this conflict. He might bring Jesus into this argument. I mean, I can imagine Paul saying, we, these, the kids in this generation, we can't keep coddling them. We can't handhold them. If they can't take a little hard knocks, then what, we can't do it without them. We're going to do it on our own. We don't need this guy. Now, you can hear that, and you can think, hmm, you know, Paul has a point, right? He has a point. But then Barnabas, on the other hand, might be thinking, <laughs> okay, Paul, yeah, you were in the same boat, my friend. You tried to, you were converted. You had this transformative experience and you tried to reunite with or unite with the church in Jerusalem and you couldn't do it. People were scared of you. And who came along and gave you a second chance, Paul? In fact, Paul, People are the mission. If we don't have any people, we don't have a mission. And unless we give this guy a second chance, which, by the way, we gave you a second chance, Paul, then nothing's going to happen. Imagine how much good can happen if we take John Mark and we mentor him and we shape him and then we send him out. Imagine what good things will happen, Paul. And you're listening to that and you're thinking, wow, you know, Barnabas has a point, right? 
Paul has a point, and Barnabas has a point. Let's do a little poll in the room. Now, I want you, if you can, if it's possible, I want you not to think about what you think is the right answer. I want you to think about what would be your answer. What would be your instinct? How many of you are Team Paul? There is a right way to do things. Let's go this. Let's I mean, if that guy can't handle it, okay, minority. But I want you guys to know you're all very honest. And the rest of the people in this room, I think, are not about to be honest. <laughs> How many of you would be like, you know what, John Mark, he's a sweet kid. I know his parents. Come on. I, that was just a one-time thing. He can do it. How many of you would be Team uh, Barnabas? All right. How many of you are so cold-hearted and disengaged that you're like, I'm not even going to vote. I won't raise my hand in the room. Yeah, very good. Okay, I, I see where everybody is now. That's great. By the way, can I, can I tell you this? Um, as a little pull back the curtain. Church leadership, 99.9% this conflict. This is exactly what happened. This is 99% of church leadership. Not conflict, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's this tension. Let me give you a for instance. Let's say there's a... Uh, a charming young minister who really wants to take the church in a, in, a, in a wonderful new direction. He's got this genius idea, and he's been thinking about it, and he's pretty sure God is on his side. He hasn't considered all the ins and outs, but he thinks it's a great idea, and he wants the church to go this way. And let's say there's an, an older, wiser elder who's also on staff. I don't know. We could call him Steve. And let's say he's, just for sake of, you know, Let's say that uh, he's not quite as charming and charismatic as the other guy. But let's say when the other guy presents his idea, he says, well, you know what? You really need to consider how that will impact people. But uh, it doesn't really matter how it will impact people because the church and progress and moving forward. Well, yeah, but if nobody's following, then it doesn't really matter, right? If, if, if the church just disintegrates and falls apart. But, but Jesus and plans and progress and... And that's, all, that's so much church leadership. And I'm, honestly, I joke a little bit, but I'm so grateful for wise people that are like, hey, let's consider the big picture here. Let's think about everything. And I don't want to imply that Steve is not about progress. He totally is. But I'm just giving you an example of what it's like. And not that I'm talking about this Steve. It could be any Steve, really, right? <laughs> it's a pretty common name, really. But I just want you to know that when we think about church uh, uh, decisions and initiatives and ideas and direction, you're having to consider all these factors because what you want and how you would like to see the church change may not be good for everybody, and it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. That's, that's a lot of church um, um, working through. That's a lot of what church leadership is, all right? So, so most of us, I think most of us were team, you said you were team Barnabas, and I think some of you might be lying because you think that's the right answer. And, I, and the truth of the matter is, as you see this story unfold, well, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. The story is, these two guys go their separate directions. That's it. And as far as we know, they never work together again. There is no biblical or historical record that Paul and Barnabas ever reteamed for a final world tour. There's no record of it. It's just... The end of the story. The end of an era. It's like McCartney and Lennon, you know? They had a few brief years and wrote all these amazing songs and it fell apart. What could have been? What could have been? It's like Jordan and Pippin. Man, they can't stand each other now. Did you know, I found this out this week, did you know that the actors that played C-3PO and R2-D2 hated each other? It's tragic, right? 
man, what's a, that's such a downer. Like, Paul is, is supposed to be this, this, this pillar of the church, and he's brought Christianity into the, into the Gentile world, and Barnabas is supposed to be the son of encouragement. He's supposed to be all about second chances. Like, they can't figure it out if they can't figure it out, and they're both trying to do the right thing. If they can't figure it out, what hope is there for any of us? Let's all be like Grandma Rosie and get way offended every time somebody ruffles our feathers. If they can't figure it out, what, what good is it for any of us? What's the lesson here? Let me give you some conflict realities. Conflict realities. This is, this is just goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, right? Conflict is an inevitable part of our story. It's an inevitable part of your life. It's an inevitable part of your story. Conflict is. Now, I'm really honestly preaching to myself because I am somebody that doesn't really like conflict and I like to avoid it, but it's, an, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. It probably, I, I shouldn't say it's going to happen. I'm going to guess that for the majority of people in this room, it is happening in your life right now. There is someone that you are at odds with, and maybe that has kind of cooled into just distance and, and, and nothing, but there's, there's conflict. There's inevitable reality. And I love the fact that Luke included it in his history of the church. If you're retelling the story of a cult, you don't include the bad stuff. You edit all that out, and Luke's like, no, these two guys, they were supposed to have it all together. They couldn't figure it out. I like that it's in there. You make sure everything looks shiny and happy if you're writing the story to, to create propaganda. Now, it's inevitable. We aren't looking for a fight. Some of you are probably looking for a fight. Most of us aren't. And some Christians, honestly, some Christians are too quick to fight. I think that they feel like if they're fighting or if there's conflict, that means they're doing the right thing. And if there's not any conflict, they get all antsy and they want to find it. But I think most of us are conflict avoidant, or a lot of us. And, and again, you know, you're hearing more about me maybe than you. But I think a lot of us just like to roll over and play dead if things start to get too heated. It's like, well, not worth it. Not worth it. But we have to make a little space for conflict. We have to create a little, little room for that in, in our lives, in our relationships, because you can't always avoid it. Uh, but you also have to understand that in order to do what is right, you will raise conflict. In order to make good choices in your life, there are people who will disagree with those choices and will create conflict. You have to create room for that. Secondly, Christians, good-hearted, well-intentioned, Jesus-loving Christians will experience conflict. Two people that both want the same thing might disagree on how to achieve that. That will happen. Even the son of encouragement, even the apostle Paul. Now, some of your conflicts may be because of you. You're, uh, you, you're rude, but you call it direct. You're gossipy. You call it honest. You're negative. You call it real. But a lot of conflict may be because you want to see good things happen. You want Jesus to work through you. you want, you're praying for good outcomes. You want to see the church do great things. And there's people who don't agree with you. There's fundamental disagreements. Jesus was perfect, and he still had conflict. We have this presumption, I think, sometimes in the church that if everybody's just trying to do the right thing, there won't ever be any disagreement. And it's just not, just not true. Uh, if, if it's possible. Can I say this? I know this might be shocking. It's possible that there are two people in this room who both want good things for themselves, their families, and the church, who are at odds with one another. That's possible. Even Jesus-loving, well-intentioned people may have conflict. And then thirdly, this is going to be really uncomfortable for some of you. There's not always a correct answer. There's not always a correct answer. Now, Patrick, 
There is a right way and there is a wrong way. I happen to know the right way. And if we're not doing it that way, it's the wrong way. I'm telling you. There are, the Apostle Paul himself wrote in the book of Romans chapter 14, hey, when you come together, verse 1, when you come together, don't dispute over uh, uh, disputable matters or don't argue over disputable matters, meaning that there are things in life that we could argue about that we don't need to. Not everything needs to go to DEFCON 5. I know we like to go there real quick because it gets us our way, but not everything needs to go there. There's not always a correct answer. There always won't be a clear right answer. But listen to this. This is crazy. Think about this. Barnabas with his gifts and his calling and his personality and his wiring, he went and he took John Mark and he seems to have restored him. And do you know what John Mark went on to do with his life? John Mark went on to write the very first account of the life of Jesus. We know it and you have it in your Bibles as the gospel of Mark. That was John Mark. He wrote that. He partnered up with Peter and he heard Peter tell him all the stories and he wrote those stories down. You can read the very first telling of the gospel of Jesus because of what John Mark did. So you're thinking, well, Barnabas was right because look at the outcome. The proof is in the pudding. Barnabas must have been right. Well, you know what Paul went and did? He chose Silas and Paul went on two more missionary journeys and planted hundreds more churches and converted thousands more people and wrote most of the New Testament. Well, so Paul was right. How about this? How about neither of them was right or neither of them was wrong, but God was able to take something ugly and messy and make something beautiful out of it? How about that? How about God is good? Not that they're right or they're right, but that God is good. There isn't always a right answer. <laughs> there are lots of wrong ways to respond, but there isn't always a right answer. And the fact that the story doesn't conclude in kind of a tidy way is frustrating. Much later, Paul gives us this line. I think this is beautiful. I think you should see this in one of the last letters he wrote. In 2 Timothy, he writes this, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark. You know who that is, right? Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. That's one of the last, literally one of the last things that we have recorded that Paul wrote. Get Mark, this guy that I was like, no, uh-uh. And you know why Paul and Mark could, could come together later and be helpful to one another? It's because they didn't say, I will never. They didn't do that. They didn't put that other person in that category and say, I'm turning my back on them and I will never reconcile. I will never find a way back. I will never allow the door to be open again. Now, again, I know some of you are thinking about the most extreme scenario, but think about just the everyday average situations that you're in. You may never reconcile with that person because it really isn't up to you. That you, you can't force somebody to reconcile. Have you ever tried that? <laughs> have you ever tried, parents, have you ever tried getting two children to reconcile? Say you're sorry. That always goes super well. It's always authentic. We may not reconcile because it's not always up to us. You, you may not go out to Sunday lunch with that person after church. You may not join their small group. You may not share a row at church. I don't know, but what a powerful testimony would those things be had there been intense conflict and you found your way past that and you shared a row and you went out to lunch and you were in a small group. What a powerful testimony that would be to the grace of God. That would be amazing. But we have to know this. In the aftermath of conflict, a posture of openness is the only way to avoid the Grandma Rosie syndrome. It's the only way. 
Some of you, your lives are pretty good, pretty cheery, everything's fine, but there's this root of bitterness because of this relationship, because you have said, I will never. A posture of openness is the only way to avoid that root of bitterness. It doesn't mean you'll reconcile with them, but it means that you won't be bitter. My grandma Rosie's story actually isn't a perfect example of this. 25 years later, there was a family tragedy, a death in the family. And my aunt, the offending daughter-in-law, invited Grandma Rosie over to the house for a little coffee and, and, and desserts in, in, in the aftermath of this tragedy. And Grandma Rosie came. My aunt left the door open. She could have been very offended herself, like she won't even interact with my grandkids. She's, that's ridiculous. She's taken it to extreme. She could have done that, and a lot of us would do that because this person has, in their response has so hurt us that we want to hurt them back. But she didn't, my aunt didn't, and invited Grandma Rosie over to the house, and Grandma Rosie once again sat close to a door, this time the front door, so she could make an escape if things didn't go well. But she was there in that little, little break, that little light, that little crack of reconciliation began to open up. And in fact, in my grandmother's declining years preceding her death, my aunt, the one who had so offended her, was one of her primary caregivers. Now, that may not have changed Grandma Rosie's heart. I don't know. We don't really know. <laughs> she was kind of a cranky lady, and I could tell you some other stories about her. But I'll tell you what, that did change my aunt. She was a better person for the way that she had responded to that. Not necessarily that the relationship was awesome or perfect, but she had uprooted that heart of bitterness, that, that seed of bitterness, and didn't allow it to grow. It's not, it's not because any of this is easy. I mean, honestly, slipping into bitterness is easy. Clinging to a grudge is easy. It's easy. It's hard to open up your hands and let it go. Revenge feels good. It feels good. But those things destroy our hearts. They destroy our hearts. I want you to um, see this verse. We've read it earlier, but I want you to see it as we wrap up and just maybe think about the conflict and the potential of conflict in your own life out of Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul writes this. We don't know what happened, but we do know what Paul might have been thinking or the ways that he might have been shaped. And Paul, part of this conflict, one half of this conflict, wrote this later. He says, get rid of all bitterness. And, and, and the word means root it out, rip it out, destroy it. It's, it's a virus. It's a pest. It's, it's just going to, it's a rodent. Get rid of it when you recognize it in your life. Get rid of it. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I want to wrap up by saying this. We love the gospel when we're the recipients of it. We love it. We love the message of God forgives my sins. Yeah, he doesn't hold it against me. No, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Yes, we love that. We love to sing about it. Those, that, that, that's so foundational to, to our worship is that we're responding to that truth that the junk in our lives doesn't keep us from a relationship with God because of Jesus. We love the gospel applied to us. 
but we struggle living the gospel to those who have wronged us. That I shouldn't hold their sins against them. That I, while they're still enemies, I should sacrifice for them. That I should forgive as I've been forgiven. Listen, conflict is inevitable, but reconciliation is one of the most obvious ways that we can live the gospel in our everyday walk. It's one of the most obvious ways. It's one of the most obvious ways that we can be like Jesus who was reconciling. You can have a posture of offense and you will suffer. Who do you think was most hurt by my grandmother not participating in the lives of her children and grandchildren for 25 years? Do you think it was her kids and grandkids? No. No, it was her. You can hold on to that root of bitterness, but it's going to destroy you. Or you can open up, you can have a posture of openness, and you may never reconcile with them, but you will avoid that trap, that trap of bitterness. It is worth it to work through it. Not just for the relationship, maybe, but not necessarily, but for you. We're going to sing a song in closing, and I'd like to invite the praise team back up here on stage. We're, uh, we pick songs that we think will be valuable and thoughtful and thought-provoking and and uh, we, we want to sing about God's grace and God's forgiveness and what he's done for us. And that's, but we also have to think about the fact that that grace and that forgiveness coming into our lives is supposed to spread into our relationships. And so we have an opportunity. We, you can today allow bitterness to stay rooted in your life. Or you can decide, I'm going to figure out a way back. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know your certain circumstances, and you can think of a million objections, but you can figure out a way back, and you can do it because you have been given an example, a way through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did that for you, and you can do that for someone else. Would you stand as we sing this together?